Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 98 of Greater Than Code, a very exciting number. Uh, I'm one of your hosts, Jamie Hampton, and I'm here with one of my great friends, Jessitron. Yay! Jess has, a, Jess has a last name that I just blanked on, but she's done it to me like a hundred times, so I don't feel bad. Right, right because you are Jessica, Jess, Jessica Care. <laughs> I got it. Thank you. That's okay. Twitter is a unique ID. Totally useful. And I am happy to be here today with Gig Sam, also known as Sam Livingston Gray. Yay, it's so great to be back. Thank you, Jessica. And I am super pleased to uh, introduce our guest today, Jenny Shen. Jenny Shen is an independent senior UX and product designer who has worked with startups and globally recognized brands, and she's received a top 40 under 40 honor from Girls in Tech Taiwan. She's given speeches and workshops in more than 10 different countries and has lectured at National Tsinghua University and Simon Fraser University. She loves helping newcomers in UX to grow, and she has a mentorship program to make that happen. In her spare time, she also advocates for diversity and works on global strategy as the regional director of EMEA at Ladies That UX, an international nonprofit organization active in over 50 cities around the world. Jenny, welcome to the show. Hi, everyone. Excited to be here. Yay. So are you from Taiwan, but now you're in Amsterdam? Yeah, uh, so I was born in Taiwan, and also I have a background of moving abroad, living in different countries, but now I am in Amsterdam. I wanted to ask more about that, but I know Sam is excited to ask the important question. Yes, Jenny, what is your superpower and how did you acquire it? My superpower, uh, in my understanding, like superpower is something that other people don't have, but I have, I have the ability so I think my superpower, the first one, I actually have two. The first one is to be able to not give a fuck about what other people think. So I just like do stuff, whatever I want to do. And I really don't care what other people is going to see. Like, of course, not doing any bad stuff. And the second superpower is that I have the ability to stand up for others for anything that's unjust. So if I see my friend, um, like being harassed and whatever, like something uncomfortable bad happened, like I will stand up for her or any any friends and I will like voice for them. In combination with the first, that's a hell of a combo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How did I acquire it? Hmm. I just think that's kind of how I, I I grew up and perhaps like the first superpower would be that I learned it from my parents. They <laughs> moved uh they, they moved abroad uh way too like very far from their parents uh, so our family moved to Canada when I was young and then my parents have been like really sort of indifferent about what other people think and that kind of um, just taught me like hey just live a life that you want and that's best for you and we are not gonna like try to control you micromanage you and yeah so that's kind of how I acquired a superpower the second one is maybe due to the fact that um like a Taiwanese culture where people kind of have a strong sense of justice. Like they really like to point out when other people have done something wrong. So I'm not like the kind of person who just like stand on the side when something wrong is happening. Nice. I'm happy to hear that because I try to raise my kids like that. Like I don't care what you do as long as you choose what you do. And so I hope they grow up like you. That'll be great. Oh, thank you. I'm wondering if you have any tips on how I can also not give a fuck about what other people think. 
It's it's an interesting question. Um, because my partner, he's very like conscious about what other people think as well, and I try to keep on telling him like I just don't care, like it doesn't matter, but he still minds. I've heard of this book, which actually he read. It's called "The Art of Not Giving a Fuck."、Uh, I haven't read it because <laughs> I have that superpower, but perhaps it will be useful. <laughs> I'm putting it on my list. Yeah. You know, it's funny that you you haven't read it because sometimes I find that it's really interesting, as somebody who is an expert in something, to go back and read a beginner's book on the topic and see how it, the how that thing looks from the outside. So I don't know, might be fun. Yeah, as an expert and not giving a fuck, I think it would be entertaining to read that book, but I would skim it. <laughs> <laughs> so Jenny, you said you've lived in many different countries. Yeah, that's right. So my family moved to Canada, and between Canada and Amsterdam,、um, I moved to Singapore. So that's one other、uh, country I've lived in, and I've also lived in a few months for like very short time in India and also the States. Nice. I guess it helps, like, to be able to not give a fuck what people think of you when you're gonna exist in all these different cultures where you're bound to like do stuff wrong, but whatever. Yeah, sort of. Even though I'm also kind of aware, like it's better to not cause other people inconveniences, but then still, if I want to like do things my way, not give a fuck about something as in a in a country that I'm staying in, I'm also kind of doing that a bit. Okay, so th- that's interesting because you mentioned having some awareness so that you can avoid like inconveniencing other people. And and I agree with that as someone who has also like never given a fuck really that I remember. I think my memory is flawed. I've I've tried to learn to be more sensitive to the other people around me because I want them to feel comfortable. What pointers can you give me for the cases where I give a fuck just not too much of one? If I'm under trying to understand like what you're saying, so you're saying like when I move to a different country and trying to understand like having the right balance between caring too much and caring too little, where it causes other people's、uh, inconveniences. I would think is just understanding about、uh, the local culture. Like when I moved to Holland, I learned about what Dutch culture is like and how people usually interact and behave with each other. So then I I can know like where I'm at and where they're at. So actually, when I moved to Holland, I started to become more direct because、um, usually I have to tone it down、uh, in my directness to not offend other people, especially when I was living in Asia in Singapore in Taiwan. But then in Holland, it actually helps me to just be myself, say whatever's on my mind. So I think knowing certain like cultural aspects probably helps. At least in my case, it it helped to know that in where I live right now. That people are more accept,、um, receptive to more direct language or do things in a more direct way, pragmatic way. Yeah, it's good to have a sense of like what some of those cross-cultural communication issues are, so that if you are going to upset somebody, you can at least do it on purpose. <laughs> Jenny, do you learn that from people, from books, or just observation? The first time, I think my initial contact would be、uh, my traveling. Before I moved here, I traveled here before, and then I try to make some local friends, or at least I go to the local meetups, and I just also ask other expats what their experiences are living in the Netherlands, 
I also read up about uh, in blogs, I, mostly other expat experiences, and also my friends who have moved here. I ask them what are some of the things I should be aware of. So I, I would say that's、um, how I learned about those things in the beginning. And later, it was when I lived here. Then I actually experience the culture firsthand, and I understand like where where the lines are and what's like the acceptable behavior and language. So one of the things that you mentioned that you wanted to talk about today was like design and UX for、um, international users, and I think it's really interesting that like you have lived in a bunch of different places and experienced a lot of、uh, this first. Hand, and so I'm wondering, in what ways does that inform how your decision making with design and UX and things of that nature? I would say that it's perhaps the other way around. Is that while I have lived in multiple places, traveled in multiple places, and then I have the opportunity to design for international users. Later on, I learned that this is something I'm very passionate about, and it's just kind of like. All part of my brand. So now I tell other people that hey, I design for international users. Clients can hire me for localizations or research、uh, for local users and whatnot. So you said researching for local users. Is that something that you've done a fair bit of? Like, do you go somewhere and try to figure out what people are up to and how to talk to them? Yeah. So I have done that in、uh, several different ways.、Uh, I've done that research on sites、uh, when I lived in Europe. We have a client that、uh, asked me to do the research, and I was able to interview like multiple users from different nationalities, different countries. I've also done that remotely when、uh, I was sourcing, well, sourcing users to interview、uh, and also do usability tests from yeah from multiple countries in the region, and、uh, it has actually proven to be very insightful. The way that the local users tell you about like their preferences and usually is something that's like different from what we will expect. So I'm curious how you how you elicit those answers, especially if you're working across one of those、uh, differences of direct versus indirect communication and so on. So, like, what kind of questions do you ask, and、uh, can you tell like when there might be more to the answer? Yeah. So the it's more about these. Art and science of interviewing users. Most of the time, I don't ask them specifically about what users of that country would do. I just ask the, the user personally, like what he or she、uh, or they might do. And then, if I find an interesting answer, I just keep on probing further. But it's at the end when I summarize and synthesize all the answers, I try to look for any patterns between one group of users versus、uh, another group of users. And for example, the things that go into a user research questionnaire—it's not that much different from a standard user research questionnaire. For example, like what shops you usually shop at, or how would you raise the user experience of the site, or how would you rate the customer support. But I would say, like the main difference is that before the user research, we will also look at the. User interface patterns, and we will also be familiar with the customs and also the there may be culture. For example, like how the user could respond to questions directly, indirectly, and knowing whether to prefer or not. I think that's one of the key points for international user research. Can I ask a very basic question? I totally get why it would like UX could be very different for people who have. 
on this basis in like other cultures that have very different customs. But I'm wondering if you could give us like one or two like concrete examples of like, this is how you might do something that you're familiar with in say the United States. And this is a different way that would be better in another context. Is the question more about user research or is that more about like the interface? I guess I, at this point I'm asking about the interface. Like what I'm, I'm trying to wrap my head around like, a real example of what might be different to kind of get a fuller understanding of what we're talking about. Of course. So a classic example is the pattern of East versus West. And one of the example is um, the homepage portal design. In Eastern cultures, it's more common to see a more busy newspaper dashboard looking kind of um, homepage with a lot of information, a lot of advertisements, and just stuff everywhere. But then when you look at a American one, an English one, it tends to be more minimal. It tends to have little information with a clear call to action. So I provided it, the example in one of my conference talks where I used the Mozilla Firefox as an example. And in the American one, it was just very minimal with a call, call to action button. And the one for China, it was super busy. And one of the assumptions for why there is a, such a big difference is due to the way the users type in their language and also the preference to browse or to search information. The assumption or the educated guess is that um, Western users, especially, say, American users, they like to have the power. They like to decide what is it that they want to search. While generally speaking, like maybe Chinese users would prefer to be led on, just give me the information that you think I should read. Give me the top five and I don't want to spend time to type in because typing takes me a really long time to find this, the right word with the same um, pronunciation. So just give me the top five news I should know for today. Can you tell me more about it's harder to find the right word to type in? Yeah, I'm curious about that too. Yeah, of course. So in Mandarin Chinese, the, the language that I, I speak, the input method is different from English in that, for example, English is made up of alphabets and then you put different alphabets together and you get a word. Even though one word might have different meanings, but the meanings are not that differently from each other. You might get like maybe at most like three or four different meanings for the same word. However, for Mandarin Chinese, you can have a word, uh, for example, Dao, D-A-O, Dao. But a Dao can mean very many different things. It can mean like a religion. It can mean a principle. It can mean a road. So when we type in Dao, via zuying or pinging, like we, we type in many different methods, we have to search which DAO is it that we are, uh, we mean. So we have to look through 20 or 30 different words to, okay, this is the DAO I mean, I mean wrote. So therefore, when we are typing in a sentence or even a news headline or a keyword, we have to look through 20 or 30 words and pick for each one, which is the one that we mean. Suddenly, my partner's struggles with spelling seem so much less significant. <laughs> because, you know, if you if you typo a word, you can usually, like, make a guess and search in the page again. Or, you know, Google will say, did you mean this? Yes, fascinating. So if, if you spoke the sentence, uh, a person would understand which one you meant? 
Yeah, if you speak a sentence,、uh, so Asian language is usually more contextual. Like we will try to think about what context it can be in, as long as this whole sentence is spoken. But when the person just says one word, it's really difficult. Like we don't understand what "tao" the person actually mean. But when a person says "book," it's like we understand what a book is, even though we don't understand the full. Sentence of what is it to do with the book, but at least we know the person is talking about a book. That's true, and even like book has an additional meaning as a verb, but book has one strong meaning, which is the noun of a book. And you wouldn't expect anyone to say book by itself and mean the verb without some clarification. Exactly. So that implies that natural language processing in a computer is a lot harder. In Mandarin Chinese than in English. I don't know about that, but one thing I do know is that because of the additional difficulty of selecting the right word when we try to say something, it is actually more common and way easier for us to use voice typing or voice input. So for a lot of、uh, messaging apps, it's actually much more easier and common for. Two people, two friends, to send message to each other with voice messages instead of just typing on the on the、um, keyboard. Voice messages like that are transcribed into characters, or voice messages that are、um, recorded. Both, actually. That is what I know for users,、uh, at least in Taiwan and also China. It's actually much more common for friends to send voice messages to each other. That, thank you for this. I mean, as a monolingual American, I don't often get the opportunity to learn this stuff, and it's it's a good、um, illustration of how much of the world I just have no clue about. How do you design when you're looking to include everyone? My process is by first、uh, knowing the inclusive design principles and trying to be aware in advance what might. Exclude people in terms of their、uh, their language, technical ability, or their social status, or their ability.、Uh, all these other things, and there are a lot of actually like guidelines and and books on them. And also, yeah, be aware of where it might exclude exclude people, and make an effort to make sure that it does not exclude people, and ask people. To test the product, so then that we know that it's not excluding anyone. What do you do if there is something that, like, I'm picturing a case where, like, doing it this way will exclude this person, and doing it this other way will exclude this other person. Like, when people's preferences or needs like conflict, like, how do you handle that? That's a really good question. Yeah, I think it's really difficult when there's multiple、uh, conflicts. Ultimately, if I was a designer, I'm one of the decision makers, or I'm involved in a process. I will also look at the impact to the business and impact to the users, or even the greater picture. Like if it's related to any ethics, and if there are just two people being affected, but what if there's actually a deeper reason that there's like a whole set of people being affected for the decision? So I will try to look at that. But when Comes to making trade-off,、uh, we do it all the time in terms of product design. So it's it's never easy. Like ultimately, we still have to make a decision. 
So is it even possible to have one design that includes everybody, or do you basically wind up having to localize? Different companies have different approaches. Uh, for example, companies like Dropbox or maybe Microsoft, I think their aim is to try to be inclusive to everyone using it. As far as I know, like they don't really do a lot of localization, but they do instead internationalization. They design with internationalization in mind. And that kind of focuses on how to make sure that people around the world will find um, like minimal friction. In my mind, it's kind of like finding the, the average or above average point of usability across the world instead of like trying to optimize for every single locale that users using the product. So there's there's also different uh, pros and cons internet internationalization and localization. So I specialize in specializing localizations in that for each market we want to design it so well that the users will find the most value and of course gives the business the most value even though the design from one country or one locale could be very different from each other. It's interesting. I've been spending a lot of time shopping for bags recently because I have kind of a bag problem. <laughs> I'm always looking for the one true bag and it doesn't actually exist. But yeah, I mean, in, in that process, I ran across a couple of bag companies that appear to only do business in the European Union. And they have, you know, localized uh, versions for different languages. And I looked at all of them. And I'm like, well, I don't speak any of those languages, but it, you know, thinking about it, maybe I should go back and look at them again and like, try to see what the differences are. Yeah, I think that would be an interesting study. Sometimes when I come across a localized version of um, like eBay and whatnot, I'm always just interested to compare the different versions and see like what the local specialty is or the special pattern is. Partly for fun and partly because it might lead us to learn something interesting. Uh, do you have an example of an instance where somebody fell down hard on trying to reach reach out to uh, a different audience? Yeah, so I saw this uh, example and I believe is a real example. A business was uh, going to China for a business meeting. And with the best intentions, they translated uh, the business cards into Chinese. So as a native Mandarin Chinese speaker, when I looked at the before and after version, uh, comparing the English and the Chinese version, I sensed that they didn't hire a uh, copywriter or translator for uh, the translation. What went wrong in the translation uh, was that in the phone number on the Chinese version, they actually wrote M and then the Dutch number format, which actually doesn't really make sense for a Chinese user because if I show it to my friends in China, they probably wouldn't understand it, nor would they understand what M means. So what's something better to do is actually to use a universal icon like a phone or mobile icon and use the international phone number format. But that's not the worst thing in the in the design. They actually mistranslated uh, one tagline of their of their I guess company. So on the bottom of the card in English it says best from Amsterdam, but in the Chinese it actually reads better be from Amsterdam. Oh. So I I guess maybe they are uh, maybe the Chinese partners who receive the card will find it a bit humorous or unprofessional. I'm actually not sure. 
what I hope is that the what I saw on Dribble was actually not the final design. I will hope that the designer got the designs verified and translated properly before they gave it to their Chinese business partners. So that's something where um, a mistake in translation, localization can actually have probably a big impact. How do you like come back from that and be like, no, we didn't mean it? I am <laughs> not sure. Uh, if I would like to suggest anything to the company, perhaps uh, in the Chinese working culture, it's like they build trust easier once they know their business partners, like in social context. So perhaps uh, this is based on what I learned from Aaron, uh, Aaron Mayer in her book, The Culture Map, that when you have like social drinks with your Chinese clients, maybe they can just laugh it off and like, hey, we forgot to translate it properly. But when they actually become more friends, they trust each other, then probably it's easier to come back from that. So both in that and in the the example overall, I'm seeing the importance of having humans in the process, and especially humans who are familiar with both cultures. Um, I actually just uh, just this week got into some trouble uh, with a trans with a Google Translate from Japanese, where something came across a, in Google Translate as social justice fighters, which I interpreted as social justice warriors. Um, and then reacted very strongly to the English connotations of that. And when I actually talked to the person in question, uh, they said they thought that what they were saying was more or less equivalent to social justice activists, which of course has a very different connotation. So I guess this week I'm just really thinking a lot about slowing down, thinking, talking to people. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. One of the key things in localization design or even internationalization design or inclusive design is to actually involve real humans of different backgrounds, different experiences. Even though it's some, theoretically more expensive when you look at it at first, right? You you mean I have to pay somebody to do the translation for me? Yeah, <laughs> yeah you really do. <laughs> exactly. I had a project where I did the translations on like Google Translate and like our intention was to like hire someone to do them for real later. But like at the time when I was just developing, I had to do them and we did a little bit of like A-B testing and we had this whole section called records. It was a app about like medical records. And it turns out the word that I had used was like specifically connotating like you beat the record in the race. Oh. <laughs> I was like, oh no, sorry. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, a medical record takes on a whole different meaning when you see it that way. <laughs> Maximum blood pressure for today. <laughs> you got the high score. <laughs> so speaking of real humans, I think there was something about mentorship in your bio. Yeah, so I started my own mentorship program. Uh, when I realized that a lot of folks were looking for mentors, they were looking for somebody to guide them in their career, give them feedback on their portfolio, resume, cover letter, and etc. And also just overall um, feedback on their designs. But there are very few seniors who actually make the time to do that. And when I speak to designers, basically almost everyone is looking for a mentor. So I thought... I can mentor. I have mentored before. Let me just start my mentorship program and see who is interested. 
And because I'm an independent consultant, uh, I do have to make time for mentorship um, and also set aside time for clients or conference speaking. I do charge for mentorship the same way as I would charge for consulting. So I put up a landing page. I just talked about it on Twitter and Facebook, on social media. And to my surprise, a lot of folks signed up. So it proved that perhaps there is a real need. And I have just been continuously mentoring people for more than a year. I mentor about three to six mentees a month. And it has been actually quite a rewarding journey so far. So do you find that most people need pretty much the same thing so that you sort of develop a rhythm as you go? Or um, is it a lot of uh, one-off like, oh, you need a lot of this, and so I have to go and think a lot about it? There are actually many different kinds of mentees. Some people just want uh, feedback on their designs. Some people are looking for feedback on their portfolio. I find that a lot of people generally have the same goals. It's related to job searching or having a location independence lifestyle like I do or jumping to freelancing like what I do now. So overall, I do see a few things emerging, but each mentee situation could be different. Their starting point is, is different. So what I do now is that I have a strategic call with, a, with each mentee at the beginning of the program. I ask them about their career goals, where they want to be, and I set up a game plan for them to achieve their goals. Nice. How do you think this differs from informal mentorship where there's not like a consulting fee for it? In my experience, charging people for mentorship actually has shown me that the mentees that I end up selected are really devoted. They are really proactive. And they come to me with really interesting questions because they know that they are paying for it. Their time and my time are both valuable. So they really think about what is it that they are, they want to ask. And in return, I feel rewarded. I get to contribute to their success and I don't have to carve out a lot of time to volunteer for this. And I get the same satisfaction and mentees also feel that because they are paying for it, I feel that it motivates them even more to achieve their goal. And I also have talked to other mentees and mentors who engage in an informal mentorship where it's not paid, there's no fees. Many people have told me that their mentor or mentee uh, got busy, maybe just told them that, hey, sorry, I I cannot continue on this. Um, You know, good luck with everything. But the mentor or mentee is just hanging there. So I feel that Charging for mentorship gives the mentees this assurance that because I am being paid, they are my clients. So I actually do have to be responsible for it and I do have to make time for it. It's kind of a commitment uh, when it's a paid relationship. That sounds really healthy. Yeah. So I think it's a more healthy relationship and also it's more sustainable because I have mentored for free before uh, for a program called Out of Office Hours. And it pairs mentors and mentees um, with uh, a chat. And during my Christmas, New Year uh, holiday, so I offered to mentor and I got about 40 mentees for a period over two weeks. And oh my. I, I wanted to help people, so I didn't want to say no. So it ends up that I actually took on um, 40 people, but about 30% were no show. So that was a bit disappointing in that I offered my my break 
my holidays to help people. But yet, when I blocked out the time, people didn't show up. So I was a little disappointed. And that was another reason that I decided to charge for this mentorship. And it's interesting how that affects the way you frame it, too, because ultimately what happened was you took your break and you mentored 25 to 30 people. But because it wasn't 40, it felt like a disappointment. Is that accurate? I would say my disappointment is that from my perspective, if I were to reach out to a more experienced person in the field, that he or she or they could spend 30 minutes to an hour to mentor me, give me advice, and I have the responsibility to show up and to respect the person's time. But because as a mentor, I didn't get that. So I feel disappointed. It wasn't that I didn't achieve this goal of 40 mentees. Uh, I did have the time. It's just that I blocked out the time. And then when I was waiting on Skype, then I got get this last minute message. Hey, so I didn't, I couldn't make it. Or even some people just didn't get back to me at all. Yeah, that is disappointing. Although <laughs> it actually reminds me of, of uh, when I first got into programming about 20 years ago. Um, I got into, into it sort of accidentally. I, I needed to learn access, Microsoft Access, to help my dad with a project. And I, about two weeks into that, I was like, well, I need to learn Visual Basic. So I went and I signed up for a Visual Basic class at the local community college. And the very first day, the uh, instructor introduced himself and was giving his, his whole spiel. And he said, and I know from experience that only about half of you will make it all the way through this class. And I was pretty young at the time. And I... I I just immediately said, well, why would somebody sign up for this class and then not complete it? And lo and behold, several weeks later, <laughs> uh, something came up for me and I wound up uh, doing other stuff. I had to take paying work and I did not, in fact, complete that class. <laughs> um, so, yeah, things happen, but it is still super disappointing. That reminds me, um, I saw, I heard of the somewhere that also I put this in my web page that people, if people can get something for free, they tend to value it less. Mm -hmm. So once somebody have actually invested time or money, they are actually more likely to achieve that goal. Like most things, it's a circle. We pay for what we value and we value what we pay for. Exactly. So hmm, now I'm thinking about the sunk cost fallacy and how we can exploit that for good. <laughs> Do you worry that there are people that, that can't afford to put like any money into this that would benefit from mentorship? And like, how, how do you kind of deal with that feeling? Of course, sometimes I get emails from uh, people that tell me that they come from a low income family or they cannot afford mentorship right now and ask if I can make an exception. So I have thought about it. I think it's fair. Um, and my decision was that I will offer scholarships, mentorship scholarships to folks where they come from a non-first world country and where there's really like limited access to mentorship or even teaching or even credible design materials or any professionals. So that are the groups of people that I really want to help. And I hope that it helps uh, creators contribute to a more even playing field um, across the tech design industry. Yeah, I was wondering also if you ever get pushback uh, from people who say, no, you should be doing this for free, you owe me all this time. And then I was thinking about uh, the website Clients from Hell and thinking there might be a parallel there. <laughs> so do you get pushback on that? Definitely. 
so when I announce my mentorship, I get two extreme sides of feedback. Some designers are encouraging. They said, it's great that you're charging because they also don't agree that people should work for free. And the other side of designers say, no, we need to, uh, they don't have money to pay for mentorship. Like it's not ethical to charge for mentorship. And they are, when I promote my mentorship, uh, actually one time in a Facebook group, somebody actually flagged it as a self-promotional thing, which I get it. It's, it's, it's fair that it's not supposed to be self-promotional, but then in it below the comments, we're talking about why I shouldn't be charging for mentorship. And in my application form, I actually got an anonymous criticism where somebody was pointing out that I am taking advantage of designers seeking knowledge. And it's not a good example. Yeah, I mean, basically, they are just trying to bring me down that the fact that I am charging for mentorship. I think it's really cool that you are able to offer scholarships and like kind of decide what the parameters of those are, because that's like a really cool opportunity for you to really say something about what you value. And I, I really admire that. Thank you. So this actually brings up something that I've seen um, a lot of people, and especially uh, Coraline, who's not with us on the show today, talk about, which is um, how privilege intersects with uh, the world of open source software and how uh, a lot of the people who are able to contribute to open source are able to do so because they already have a high-paying full-time job and don't have a lot of other commitments uh, to family or medical problems or whatever else. So you wind up with a very small subgroup of people uh, who are highly overrepresented in the open source world. And it occurs to me that, you know, if we were able to pay more people for their contributions, we could probably solve open source's severe diversity problem pretty quickly. And that then makes me think uh, that's part of what Ruby Together, among other things, uh, among other organizations are doing. I think that's a really good point. And from what I hear, I do know that employers value open source contribution. But just like mm -hmm. what you said, if today one does not have the time, because maybe they are overworked in a you know, 12 hours a day kind of job, and then they don't have time to contribute to open source, why should they be a less capable candidate? So I think you have a, have a really good point there. Oh, and then that makes me think of GitHub as resume, which uh, I, I'm, I've seen a lot of pushback on for these very reasons that, you know, only the people who have the, the time and privilege to be able to contribute to their GitHub page um, can take advantage of that. Is there an equivalent in uh, the design world? Actually, I think in the design world, it's more about side projects. It's more about what the person does on the side, even though there's not really one thing the person can contribute to, as far as I know. Most designers who have time uh, on their side, they end up creating their own thing. It would, it, it would be a podcast or it would be like an art store or it would be building, just building their dribble page and whatnot. I you would mentioned actually, portfolio earlier. Yeah, the portfolio. Is is a designer's portfolio kind of the equivalent of my GitHub account? This is some stuff I've done? Yeah, yeah, it is, yeah. Okay, except that my GitHub account also contains a lot yeah. of crap, but if I curated it. <laughs> right. Yeah. 
Yeah, I was kind of more answering from the angle of is there like open source thing for designers? So my answer was like not oh, yeah. as far as far as I know, but definitely like we are like judged and criticized for our portfolio, how good it appears. And if you have the time for side projects, then your portfolio looks better. So yeah, that actually does seem directly equivalent. Exactly. Yeah, it sounds like it's even more so for designers that it really is standard to have things that you did on your own time on the side. Yeah. Jenny, while while we have you on the podcast, and since you charge for this kind of advice, can can you give our <laughs> give our listeners some free pointers to how would you what steps would you take to move toward say freelancing and location flexibility? <laughs> that's that, that's great. That's that's great. Step one: don't give a fuck. <laughs> give a fuck about what podcast hosts say. <laughs> And I'll never be invited back. <laughs> um, towards freelancing, my first piece of advice is try to think from the perspective of a client. Most designers, they structure their portfolio and write the copy for the portfolio in order to impress other designers. However, if they are targeting a freelance, if they are looking to attract freelance work, the portfolio should actually be more about the end results because most businesses that are looking for freelancers actually don't know all the design jargon. So when I work with mentees who want to um, jump into freelancing, first, of course, is have a solid portfolio where clients can easily see that this is a capable, skilled, reliable designer. And then they want to see how can a designer help me with my product or service. So yes, first advice is learn to even talk with uh, potential clients and ask other businesses, not designers, what they think of their portfolio. And second one, a second advice is just to put themselves out there. Many designers want their portfolio to be perfect and flawless and showing just only the best thing. And they keep on procrastinating having a dribble accounts or setting up a Twitter account, setting up media and, and a blog and whatnot. But being visible in the online world is able to bring so many benefits. Like client is able to search them online, stumble upon this freelancer's portfolio and send them an email to hire them. So my advice is don't be afraid to put themselves out there and don't procrastinate to put their work out there. And towards the location independence, I think it comes maybe naturally with uh, experience. Clients who are hiring remote workers are looking for just really solid experience. Uh, and a person who wants to be location independent should also look more remote work instead of being in their uh, physical community. So one thing that I do that actually helped me uh, get a lot of remote work is that I am involved in a lot of online communities where people online know me and they can recommend me. And on the contrary, if today a person is networking all the time in person, all of the jobs, most of the jobs are going to come through are more likely to be in-person, on-site jobs. So the more a person can be involved in online communities, putting their work out there, and having a proven track record of doing good work, then the person, it helps to 
bring the person closer to location independence. Or they can just go the easy way. They can find a remote company and work for them. So I have a friend who is a very well-known Agile consultant, and he was kind enough to give me some career advice uh, quite some time ago. And uh, in that conversation, he he said something really interesting about how and why he travels. And he said that he finds that he has more credibility as a consultant when he has to travel further away. Because, you know, when you are introduced as, hey, here's this guy I met at the gym, and he happens to be an agile consultant, and he might help us out. That has a different cachet than, hey, here's this uh, internationally known person that we flew uh, across the country to come in and help us out. So maybe that's something that uh, people looking to get into location independent work can exploit. Yeah, I think that's fair. At least it will impress me if the person I'm meeting is um, being flown by a client from far away. So you value what you pay for and you value what you've flown from far away. Because you paid for it. Fly in. (laughs) So if you want prestige, travel farther, charge more. Charging more is probably always a good idea. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. But I guess also uh, practicing price discrimination helps, by which I mean charge more and then give scholarships. Well, this has been a really awesome conversation, but unfortunately, it's uh, right about the time of the show when we start to wrap up and everyone gives a reflection on something that stood out to them in their mind that they want to think about a little more, maybe a call to action. And I can definitely start because I'm thinking about something that we said when we were talking about valuing what you pay for I think it was Sam that mentioned um, the sunk cost fallacy. And I think I like we didn't really it was kind of a joke that we didn't go into. But I really actually want to think a little bit more about that because it's hard for me sometimes to commit to the things I'm doing. And I find myself I do a lot of things, um, which is something I like, but it means that sometimes it's hard to follow through on all of these kinds of things I'm doing. And so this idea of taking the sunk cost fallacy, weaponizing, in fact, the sunk cost fallacy um, for myself is something that I'm definitely going to continue thinking about because if I can, if I can trick myself into finishing things that I know I want to finish and I know will be rewarding for me if I finish, I think that would be a really positive change in my life. So uh, I got it. I'm going to chew on that a little bit more, I think. So I actually feel like I, I, uh, threw away my uh, reflection earlier in the show when I was talking about the importance of bringing humans into everything that you do, especially like we were talking about translation and um, going across cultures. And uh, really, for me, that that comes down to the entire point of this podcast, which is emphasizing how important humans are. And uh, we really like to emphasize that because it's something that's often overlooked or minimized in tech, uh, in tech culture, especially. So yeah, I'm just going to go with that as my reflection. (laughs) Today, I learned some really interesting stuff about how culture and language is different in Asia compared to the US. And I also found it interesting, the distinction between internationalization and designing so that everyone can use it versus localization, designing so that each person can really use it. 
and that those are very different things. So it's not just about everybody. It's about each person and you can choose which markets are most important and really personalize for them and even hire people to do research about how to personalize to them. That's really cool. So in the conversation, uh, I realized that the scholarships is a way for me to kind of signal and inform other people what I value and what I want to promote. I actually never thought about it that way. Uh, aside from that, it might be a kind thing to do and some folks might appreciate it. Uh, it also reminds me that I, I probably should put the scholarship information on my website because right now it's just in email replies, but I don't make it sort of officially on my webpage. And another thing I was thinking about uh, is Sam's comments about the open source uh, for dis- for for just designers or tech or, or in general. I'm thinking about like what can we do to even out the um, advantage of folks who are paid well in their day job so that they contribute to open source and how let them how that can lead them to be perceived as a better candidate. Like what can we do about that when there are some actually some privilege um, for some people in that area. So it's something to think about, but I know it's probably not going to be a um, easy thing to solve. Actually, it turns, it seems that that might be one of the few problems you could at least partially solve by throwing more money at it. Yeah. Yeah. When the limitation is time and money and the, the world will never be fair, but we can do our little bit to make it more fair as Jenny is with her scholarships. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sweet. Jenny, thank you for joining us today. It was lovely. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Yeah, we're really glad you could join us. This is great. Yes, thank you so much. Thanks, listeners. You've made it all the way through another episode, and we'll be back at you next week. If you haven't had enough of us yet, then you can find us on our Slack channel, which you get an invitation to if you give us money on our Patreon, so you too can demonstrate what you care about. And if you care about things that are greater than code, then you can help that with money because this is a listener-supported podcast. So go to patreon.com slash greater than code. Yeah.